Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. The Hellmouth Con. The Hellmouth Convention is back, and it's hosting a spectacular event in the place of all places, Torrance High School, the shooting location for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Join us June 15th, 2024 for one day only. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center and the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. Visit thehellmouth.org for details. SoonerCon 32. Oklahoma City's longest-running premier pop culture convention returns June 21st through 23rd, 2024. Prepare for three days of cosplay, crafts, tabletop gaming, and legendary guests, all in the friendly town of Norman, Oklahoma. To give back to the community, fundraisers and a live charity auction will be held. Visit SoonerCon.com to reserve your membership. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig and I'm going to be your host. If there is one thing in this hobby that will never ever let you get bored, it's discovering new artists. At every convention, in every nook and cranny, I've always found promising new artists that are just trying to get their start and they have the most thoughtful and expressive designs. Every single one of them deserves to be under the spotlight. Today I'm welcoming Kaylee Rose into the show because I really appreciate the attitude she has and the approach she's taking and I'm hoping you give her work a chance. Let's get started with Kaylee Rosen. On tap today we have Kaylee Rosen. How are you doing this fine morning? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing fantastic. We just had a little chat here about we narrowly missed each other at New Orleans Fan Expo. I do regret that. But I really think that I want to tell people about your art because when I was looking through the artists that were going to be at Fan Expo and I found your work, I looked at this and said, this this grabs me. Because when I go to a convention, I like to find a new artist, like we were just talking about finding newly created people. And they clearly have a distinctive style with a definitive mood and you have that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, so I, most of what I do is very stylized and illustrative. I've really built my brand. I love tarot cards and the occult, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I've really built a lot of my brand around like tarot and like seeing into yourself and understanding like who you are. Um, I really love that, but I've also found a lot of happiness in creating scientific illustrations, specifically entomological. That's bugs for anyone who doesn't know. (laughs) Um, So I really have two sides of myself that I am very passionate about, whether it's the illustrations, you know, seeing who you are or looking at nature. You know, those, those are my two favorite parts of art, personally. That is, it does help describe what you do a lot. And one thing I want to point out is like when I say you have a distinctive style and mood, there are artists where I wouldn't say that about them. And that's not necessarily to disparage them, but I I go through their work and I'm not going to point out examples, but it's like, it just feels like it's the same thing I've seen elsewhere with a slightly different color palette. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's not you. I see what you're doing here and it's like these works clearly they came from a place of appreciation where you had a scene in mind or uh, you wanted to play with the idea and that's very joyful to me thank you thank you that's very kind 
Um, something I really love to do when I'm, you know, planning out, not even planning out, but starting a piece of artwork is I will select, like, if I'm doing a tarot card, I will try and get the mood or the feeling of the tarot card. And I'll just kind of let myself free associate from there. Um, I found that honestly, free association has been a huge, huge help in trying to create something that I haven't seen before. I just, I take you know, a concept, a very vague concept. And I'll just start an illustration based on the way that makes me feel. You know, I'll select colors or shapes along with, you know, the uh, feeling I get from my concept, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it does, it does. And so can you describe a certain time when you did that with a certain piece and how you got from oh, what if I do this to bringing the ideas in and seeing where it takes you? Absolutely. So I, I mean, that's really honestly my process for most of my tarot cards. Um, when, when you're looking at tarot specifically, for anyone who doesn't know, it's very much so personal to the artist and the person performing the reading. Um, each card has a, a general concept across every single deck but each person reading a deck reading a, a set of cards will get something different out of it and so when I'm creating an illustration I am illustrating my own personal interpretation of that card each card has a different meaning and each card has a different meaning based on the other cards that are pulled alongside it when you're doing a reading um, so let's say with my most recent tarot card that I did, Death, uh, the concept for that is about, it's not about death, it's actually about rebirth. It's about understanding that from endings come life. And I found that really inspiring. So what I did was I just kind of let myself draw for a moment without any plans in my head, anything I wanted to complete with that. And I just let myself find the shapes and the colors that really inspired me, made evoked that feeling that I was just speaking on. <clears throat> and then from there, I selected the different shapes and the different colors that I found most accurately, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Completed, nope, that's not the word. Evoked the feeling that I was going for. Um, and so that kind of, the doll just kind of is very nebulous until it becomes a thing. Um, yeah, it just all of a sudden it'll like snap and I'm like, oh, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing. I found my, my vision and I found where, exactly where I'm going from here. Oh, I lost your sound. I think you- No, no, I'm here, I'm here. <laughs> I'll say, so when you do this, when you, you know, you're putting together you're seeing these signs and the, these colors, and does it even make sense to you after the fact, or you just know you found the right thing? Um, well, I don't, this is something that's very hard to explain. Um, I apologize. <laughs> no, no, that's uh, okay. That's, that's, I, these are not easy concepts that come easily to words. That's why I'm just trying <laughs> to fish a little bit and see where you're at. No, no, don't worry. Um, yeah, so, the way that I like to think about art personally and the way that I like to think about creativity is much more 
emotionally based rather than like in your head. Um, I try as hard as I can to get out of my head when I create art. I find that it, it personally prevents me from making things that I'm happy with and excited about. And so when I consume art and when I um, create art, I try and just go off of the way that I'm feeling and the way that it makes me feel um, to sound all like artsy fartsy. <laughs> I just really love the feel like the feeling that art can give you and the way that I can convey those raw emotions without words without thoughts into my artwork well ironically <laughs> you saying that you try to get out of your head and try to not really think about it too much is to me the most logical way of going about it because <laughs> if, if if art were a completely linear logical process then there would be no point in doing it Oh, absolutely. It's, yes. It's that you get wrapped up in the emotion. You get the ability to create something new, which almost has to be completely emotion-based. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I have a lot of friends who are in STEM. Mm -hmm. And as much as I, I love them, I found that they have a very different way of approaching art in general than I do. Um, for an example... Uh, me and all of a bunch of friends who are all STEM people, they all work in a biology, biology lab, um, went to go see The Boy and the Heron, the new Ghibli movie. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not. It's wonderful. I definitely recommend it if you haven't. And that movie is very vibes based to sound like a Zoomer. <laughs> it's all kind of very nebulous and you just kind of have to let your emotions be taken alongside with you. And, you know, they came out of it and they were like, I have no idea what I just watched. And I'm like, you weren't paying attention to the vibes. You were trying no. to make too much sense out of it. <laughs> yes, I totally know what you're talking about. I have been there many times with many different movies. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go... The feedback is very weird. What were you saying? Oh, I was just saying that I've been there many times and I. I'm sorry that you had to have that conflict with your friends, even if it was a good natured <laughs> conflict. It was just, you went in for very different reasons. And I'm not even the biggest Ghibli fan, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, probably haven't given it a fair shake, if I'm being honest with myself. But I know where you're coming from. I know it's very yeah. much a vibe-based, a mood-based. It's, it's one of those styles that is so based on its aesthetics and its mood that you're not really going to be able to just explain it easily yeah absolutely um <clears throat> I I am a huge huge animation fan it's what made me fall in love with art and so obviously anyone else who loves animation will empathize with just the glory that is Studio <laughs> Ghibli but I mean I mean, I honestly, I don't think it was a bad thing to have that conversation. I really love having those conversations and learning about different ways that people consume and view the art that mm -hmm. they are surrounded by. Because, you know, something that a lot of people who aren't creatives might not realize is that everything you interact with, everything you interact with is art, whether it's the desk you're using or this microphone I'm using somebody a designer had to sit down and intentionally put this together and 
I am really, really interested in the ways that different people from different walks of life, whether they're different creatives or STEM people or anything else, approach and view art in general. You had mentioned to me earlier that you are pretty recently out of art school. Yes. When you were in art school, did you take any philosophy aesthetics courses? Um, no, unfortunately, the way that my school worked, it was very, very focused. Once you chose gotcha. a major, you didn't really exist outside of that major. Gotcha. So I was an illustrator. Um, I took, it's actually one of my favorite courses that I took in school, uh, aesthetics. And one of the things you do early on is define what art is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we and, had one of those. Yeah. Okay. What definition did you use? Because I have mine, but I want to hear yours first. So mine was in actually the history of illustration, and we talked about the difference between illustration and art, and we talked about, you know, and that conversation has a lot to do with the definition of art. Um, <laughs> that's quite the question, you know. I think that any expression of human creativity is art, so that would absolutely exclude any AI art. But as any expression of creativity is art to me. So I completely agree with you on everything you just said. <laughs> um, at, at least to the extent that AI, because it has no human element, is not art. Yeah. And I don't even really think I need to have that conversation further because the point is just so self-evident. Yes, absolutely. Um, where I might disagree, and I think this might be a case of it's it's a context that we have to have the discussion, but... The definition of art we use is that art is the ability for a person to do something well. And That's interesting. In that definition, there's not necessarily an element that needs art to be creative. Being creative is a choice you make based on what you're doing. But like you said, if somebody is making that table or they are designing that house, they can their art can be strictly functional. Their art can be strictly utilitarian, but if they do it well, it's still art. You know, I would now honestly, you... yeah, <laughs> I would disagree with you. I think the exact, I would, I'm on the exact opposite. I would flip it the other way. I don't think art has to be done well in order for it to be art. You know, when I was 14 and drawing terrible, terrible anime in my bedroom, I think that was still art, even though it was like, terrible I mean like it was objectively bad but it was still me sitting down and making the choice to spend three hours on a drawing that made me happy and I think that was still but creativity and as a scientific illustrator you know a lot of what we do you know this was a discussion when I took a scientific illustration class um it is we had to have that conversation of aesthetics over functionality and Art fundamentally, scientific illustration fundamentally is understanding that there is a function to your art that must always take precedent over the aesthetics. And even though we're artists and we want to put the aesthetics first, it has to be functional. And although there's functionality to it, there's still an intense level of creativity to that. A aesthetics and creativity are two very different things. And yeah, you have to be very creative to create something that is highly functional. Agreed. Completely agreed. Um, when I say <laughs> that art is the act of doing something well, I don't necessarily mean that the output is great. 
Oh, okay. The fact that you sat down at 12, 13, 14 and drew and maybe didn't create a masterpiece doesn't really matter. You were still sitting down saying, I want to make something great. How can I practice this? How can I play with this so that I can make something great? Even if you didn't make something great, you were trying. You had the intent. You had the desire. That made it art. So what you're arguing is that art is more about intention than output. That's Mm -hmm. interesting. Not that the output is unimportant. Absolutely. (laughs) But you can look at this and say, here's because even the best art, the person who made it can look at it and see the flaws. They know where they went wrong. So you you can't make the output the end goal. I had on a very early episode, Jackie Ray Naaman Jones, who was in Manos, The Hands of Fate, arguably one of the worst movies ever made. Yeah. And I consider that movie high art. Not because <laughs> it's great, but because you can look at it and say, this they were trying for something here and something beautiful came out of it that wasn't even what they were looking to make. But in terms of it being a movie that was made for almost no money at a time when nobody did that, yeah, it, it, it's a masterpiece in that regard. I really, sorry, I really appreciate that perspective um I think that's so much fun I love love like bad movies and bad tv shows because of that you know when you consume a piece of artwork and you can just tell that even though it's absolute garbage everyone working on it was having a blast Mm -hmm. just having so much fun and making genuinely having a really good time even though the output is just nonsense that's some of my favorite art in the world is just bad movies. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, I also had on Shyla Dante who wrote The Christmas Dragon, which is a, it, it, it was a, a, a Christmas movie made about 10-ish years ago, maybe 15 years at this point. And I, I said to her, you, know, you, you can get that everybody was trying to make something great here. What actually happened might be a different story but you can see the intent you can see the drive and that's magical absolutely absolutely i love art that is joyous i when you can feel the happiness and the love that the artist put into it or the artists in the case of the movie um it really is something that you can't put into words Mm -hmm. you know there are some objectively phenomenal movies out there and as good as they are, you don't always get that feeling of genuine joy that the artists have, the, the laughing they had in the writer's room and all of those things that mm-hmm. the, the movie just holds within its soul, if that makes any sense. Sure. Sure. And especially <laughs> when you have a movie that's made by a, a smaller team where clearly even the people in the writer's room ended up being behind the camera and the people behind the camera ended up in front of the camera. And you just every, have a group of people trying to make an end result happen. Yeah. That's like you're capturing a moment in time of the people that made it as much as what ends up being produced. And yes. if, maybe you can't appreciate that unless you've tried to make something yourself. I completely agree. I think those kinds of terrible movies that are made with such joy are something that is very hard to be loved by someone who doesn't put the same love into their own artwork. I don't know if that makes any, Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to stop saying that. <laughs> no, no, please. Um, I, I don't know if I lost my train of thought. I apologize. I, I just find something so genuinely phenomenal about the love that goes into artwork that I think can be very hard to understand if you aren't also an artist. I, I love that feeling when you're watching, let's say, I, I love talking about movies because it's, it's like a very small, definable thing you can talk about in front of the art. Yeah. You look at that and you have that moment where you're like, that line wasn't in the script. That that shot was an accident and it's still amazing. And they knew it when they had it. Like, oh, we didn't plan on this, but we can't lose it. Yeah, when you can absolutely. recognize that from that side of the screen. I, I, I find it very, very, and I, that's a special moment for you as, as a fan. Yes, absolutely. I am personally, I love live action, but I am a massive, what made me fall in love with art in the first place is animation in particular. And that's a lot harder to do in, in, in the animation. I don't know if you know anything about the pipeline, the animation pipeline, uh, but you know, I find it is much more common rather than the actors having those moments of spontaneity, but the storyboarders, you, if you look at like, old storyboards for shows like Adventure Time or The Amazing World of Gumball, you can find some absolutely bonkers moments of people just being, having a good time writing the show that makes no sense and is absolutely just a joyful and joyous moment in time. I, yeah, I think we can empathize in that way. For sure, for sure. Like, I, in, I don't know if you're with this but in uh, disney's beauty and the beast there was a line that was improvised that they had to rush around to re uh, you know change the animation to make sure they could keep it oh it's, really <laughs> yes it, it's the line where cogsworth is talking to the beast and he's saying you know trying to talk about what he can do for is like well the usual flowers chocolates promises you don't intend to keep yeah that last <laughs> bit was improvised and they were like oh that's too good we can't lose that i know that in the creation of aladdin they had Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name now. The The voice of uh, the genie. Robin Williams. Robin Williams, thank you. He was improvising pretty much the entire time. I know that they had at least a, the very beginning scene where the the vendor is, is showing you all of his goods. Mm -hmm. That's completely improvised. And I not only do I find that extremely impressive on the side of the animators to be able to go back and recreate an entire scene after the voices have been put in, but I also find it so exciting and fun when you see that combination of energy from the the animation and the artwork combined with the energy of improv, the wonderful improv of Robin Williams. Yeah, Robin Williams was, well, I can imagine he was like, as somebody once said, you don't direct Jim Carrey, you put the camera on Jim Carrey and let him do his thing. I imagine <laughs> yes. Robin Williams had to be the same way. Absolutely. I'm sure he, yes. I, he was a little bit above my time, but I was such a Disney fan growing up that he, he inspired me definitely with a lot of his, his performances. I feel so <laughs> bad with that. And uh, <laughs> see, if you're, before Robin Williams, you have to realize there was a time when Robin Williams could open a movie. Yeah. And you, I'm not even sure if you really get what me saying he could open a movie meant, because we don't really do this anymore. 
But there was a time when if a certain actor or actress was in a movie, you could know nothing about the movie and you would go to see that movie right away because you knew they were in it. A few actors had that kind of power and he was one of them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I do believe they still do that today. You know, as a fan of animation, there has Mm -hmm. been a lot of controversy in the last few years with the big box animation movies having really terrible voice actors that had their names, like Chris Pratt specifically. I mean, it's a bit of a (laughs) sore name (laughs) because he, his name makes the movie, right? Him as Mario or him as Garfield, he is the person opening the movie. And even if it's making the movie worse with his presence in it, in my opinion, um, he is the person bringing the parents into the movie theater. I I see what you're saying, and I think you're mostly right. <laughs> I, um, but I feel like if if you look at Chris Pratt and Garfield versus Robin Williams and oh no anything, no I don't think they're anything alike. <laughs> no, it's it's not the same. It's almost like and rather than him opening the movie, Hollywood is trying to make Fetch happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and by that I mean some he has a really good agent and he's not an untalented person. I I don't want to take away from what he does have, but like you're completely uh, we're on the same page here. It's like he was put in movies that really didn't benefit from his presence at all. Yes, I I 100% agree with you. I think that Robin Williams is a once in a lifetime kind of talent, and Chris Pratt is not on that level. I I don't want to speak too much about (laughs) uh, him as a human being, but yeah, I'm not trying to make that equation. I'm just saying, you know, the opening of the movie. (laughs) It feels like the distinction has to be made here, just because like you said, and you had a great point, it's like, oh, well, that happens today too. Yeah, it does, but I don't necessarily think it happens because the audience drives it. I think it happens synthetically, astroturfingly, Because the studios are trying to make it seem that way. Yes. I think that it, I I am completely agreeing with you. I, I'm, um, I think that it can happen and it can be really magical and wonderful and you can be bringing an amazing talent into the movie. And then sometimes I think that a studio just wants to make money. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, you know, sometimes studios can fund really phenomenal artwork and sometimes they don't and I think that money is a very massive barrier to the creation of phenomenal artwork oftentimes interesting I I like that could could you you explain what you mean by that rather than have me put words in your mouth oh absolutely I I mean there it's pretty simple I just I find you know I see studios that don't make a ton of money and are making genuinely phenomenal artwork. I'm a massive fan of video games, personally. And I see these tiny indie studios making games unlike anything I've ever seen before. And they're not making very much money off of it. But then I see games like Fortnite that have um, what any character you could ever imagine. The guy from Family Guy or whatever. And they're they're really well-created games, but the difference between a game made for art and a game made to make money is so deeply apparent to me. And they're like we were talking about earlier, 
um, the magic and the joy from those those terrible movies that um, those terrible movies that were an act of genuine creation those movies didn't make any money and so I find it very inspiring when someone makes art that is so genuinely them because it's not oftentimes very profitable mm-hmm. uh, if you love video games are you into the homebrew scene at all um no okay. no not really well for the benefit of the audience this is where somebody will take a system that's not been around for many years like the original nes or the game boy those are some of the big ones right now and they will make a brand new game for it oh really and this does exactly what you just said it it produces a work of art within a very first of all there are technical limitations because there are things you just can't do on an old game boy or the nes and there's financial limitations because it's expensive it's Money doesn't solve all your problems. I'm not saying it's expensive, but it's like you have to put in the work to get it done aesthetically and technically that you just can't buy your way out of. Absolutely. And these have been some of the best games I've played in the past decade. Some of the only things i played in some cases. And <laughs> I love it. I eat it up with a spoon. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's really what I'm talking about is these artworks, these pieces of art um, that are made by people knowing they won't see a penny off of it, right? They're Mm -hmm. genuine creations or passion projects um, that would not ever exist if people only made art for profit and if art only existed for profit. And And with, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 it's okay. (laughs) With these games you're talking about, uh, you get a run of maybe 5,000, 10,000 cartridges at absolute most, and then yeah. they release it on Switch or, or Xbox, which is like they'll sell there, but it's a very niche audience. So clearly they're not going to be just completely raking it in. Absolutely. But the audience is there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you'll see people, it just, there's so much love in those games because you're you're making these things because you want to see it exist and that is something that i will always find so much joy in i noticed in some of your artwork you had some pokemon stuff oh <laughs> yes speaking of video games and making stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. can, can i guess you're something of a fan and that you're something of a fan of the game boy i actually started playing pokemon on the nintendo 3ds Okay. Which is still um, cool. Yeah. I my first game was Pokemon X and Y, uh, to date myself a little bit. But um I I love Pokemon. You know, I recognize, you know, it kind of is counterintuitive to what we've been talking about, you know, making art for the love of it. But I I do love, love Pokemon, even though it's a massive I, I think I saw one time that it is the second largest IP, at least children's IP ever. Okay. I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me. Well, you are quoting me. This is a podcast. <laughs> but um, it is massive. I know, that's okay. Whether or not. And I, I love it. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if it's always being made because of the love of it, but I do genuinely find so much joy in the fan, st- fan side of Pokemon. Um. 
I also, I love just, I love creature design. I think it's so much fun, especially when they're silly and stupid and they just make me laugh out loud when I see them. I have noticed a lot of, we're going back to the whole bad art and how much joy it brings you. There are some absolutely atrocious Pokemon character designs out there that just make you want to vomit. And they are by far my favorites because they just, I see them, I'll be playing the game and I will see them and I will just suddenly burst into laughter because this thing should not have ever been designed. It should not exist. And so I try and bring some of that, that joy and that laughter that Pokemon can bring me into my design. So if you look, if you see them, they're always very stupid looking. And I, I like to say that if I'm doing a sticker like that, if I make myself laugh out loud, I know I'm doing a good job. I want them to be as ugly I, I, and terrible as possible. <laughs> I confess, I, I brought that up specifically because I actually don't know much about Pokemon. Yeah. And that's, you know, you can call it a personal character flaw if you want. But I wanted to hear the perspective of somebody who truly did enjoy it. And the fact that you really get that much pleasure out of making yourself laugh before you even make the sticker yeah it's a sign that, that you're doing this art for the right reason <laughs> thank you you know it it obviously it, it is very very popular my pokemon all of my pokemon stuff is my best selling artwork by far aside from my studio ghibli artwork it really goes like it disappears immediately and so that is obviously a driving factor but my main reason, the reason I started drawing them was because I just, I saw these designs when I was playing the game and they just were so stupid. And I wanted to create something that was just as stupid and made me smile just as much. I, I don't think Pokemon lends itself to being super serious. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> um, you know, I think something that people really love about the games is that there's so many different ways to to like it and love it you know you can fall in love with it for the character designs or you can fall in love with it for the strategy right I'm not the strategy person I like collecting as many as I can to look at the stupidest ones but you know I think that's what makes a good game personally as someone who likes video games a lot is if there are a lot of different ways that you can appreciate and enjoy a game yeah, the better games do have the flexibility to play them in different ways or for different reasons. And that's a replay thing, too. You can challenge yourself in different ways when you finally beat the game the intended way or mm -hmm. get to the point where you can't do any better. Yeah, absolutely. Just give yourself that handicap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, I, there are so many people out there who have played those games a million times. I am not personally one of them but I, I have so much appreciation for people who can sit down for 150 hours, finish a game, and decide, you know what? I'm going to start all over again and undo all of my progress. <laughs> yeah. I always like to keep my original game that I know that I beat, so I have yes. something to go back to. It's like my baseline, and I, I, I don't play Pokemon, but like things like The Legend of Zelda or Maniac yes. Mansion, now I'm dating myself, so bear with me <laughs> um yeah. oh sorry go ahead no, go ahead 
Oh, I was just, you know, recently I, I'm a Switch gamer. I'd like to play on my Nintendo Switch. And I was recently, uh, right before Tears of the Kingdom came, came out, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, I decided to replay Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And I, I was replaying it. And I had to make that decision to delete all of my progress right before I started over. Mm-hmm. And I I died inside a little bit, but I was like, I really want to play this game again. And I it was it was a hard moment for me to choose to put away like 150, at least 150 hours that I had just trashed to restart mm-hmm. the game. It, it it must be heartbreaking every single time because I don't know if I could do it for Tears of the Kingdom. We jump gears for a minute here. Um, Absolutely. I, I love that we're talking about things that are, are cute and enlightening, and and yet you're. I don't want to ignore the fact that you do anatomical artwork too for scientific illustration. Yes. Yes. And, and that's it's it's a valid skill. I'm just it's an interesting companion skill to what we've already been talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, that's that's a really good point. I um, I have always loved science. You know in up until probably high school I science was my favorite subject I was terrible I would raise my hand to every question I would insist to answer everything I loved it but when I got to high school I became fairly disillusioned with science in general because of the fact that I found that it was a lot less about learning and a lot more about writing. And as someone who is dyslexic, I found it very exclusionary to me. Is that the right word? Whatever. I'll take it. (laughs) You know, I felt myself very excluded by science in general. And so I kind of let myself take a back seat from that. I have always loved learning and I love the magic of, of learning something new and having feeling your brain just expand ever ex, um, exponentially because of it. I just found that the scene of the of science particularly was not something that was very welcoming to someone like me. And I was also in love with artwork at the time. You know, I was talking about how like. 13, 14, I was making those terrible drawings in my bedroom. And I'm sorry, am I am I talking quietly? No, 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 I had an itch, sorry. Oh, <laughs> I apologize. Um, and so I was talking to my friend when I got to college. I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I love science and I love art. And she looked at me and she was like, why don't you do scientific illustration? And I was like, why hadn't I thought of that before? And so originally I went in intending to do medical illustration um, because I love medicine. I find it so fascinating and so important. And I eventually moved away from that and I found entomological illustration. And it, it, was, it was so much fun. We pinned bugs, you know, we took these, these dead stinky bugs and we rehydrated them in our little solutions and then we pin them and it was like this experience that I had truly never had before and I had never taken the time to analyze and look at an insect to the degree that I had prior to 
this experience. And I was like in love. It was amazing. It was not only do I think that they're very silly and they do make me laugh. I think that they're very funny looking. Um, so I do get that joy out of it, but I also, it, it feeds that desire in me to constantly be learning and understanding the world around me. So it's a little Pokemonish. A little Pokemonish, honestly. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead. If, if you like this, I'm going to send you a link. This is um, a person called beetlelady.com. And this is a woman who has uh, made it her mission to teach classes on bugs to mostly to children, but honestly to anybody that will listen. And she has a lot of the same perspectives on just being fascinated by the way these creatures are designed and built and wanting to just spread that information around the world. I sent you the link here, uh, but I'm also going to put it in the show notes on this on my website. Absolutely. I, I just, I copied and pasted it, so I'll have it for later. Yeah. You want to check it out uh, for sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, and that's one of the areas where I love that I talk about creativity making real life better is that we can have these unexpected um, meshings of art and science together that, that, that they can both benefit each other and, and lift each other up. Absolutely. You know, there's so much learning that goes into scientific illustration because <clears throat> in order to create something that is as informative as it is beautiful, you have to know a lot about your subject. And so <laughs> it, you have to do so much learning. And I, I really do just, it feeds that in me, that love of education, that love of learning without forcing me to have to put it into words. I am not a, a although we're on a podcast right now, I'm not a very verbal person. I, I think a lot and I don't put a lot of it into words. And so it really allows me to express my love and my joy associated with science without having to put it into words. That's an excellent point. That, <laughs> that, you know, that, and we had just started off this conversation by saying that the, the need to put things into words can be a very, very limiting factor. And that's limitation is not always necessary. Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the re reasons why I love visual art so much is that you can express so, so much without saying a single thing. I find that extremely inspiring. And I, and with science, it, it's really great because other people can put it into words for me and I can just do the silly little drawings of my silly little bugs while I do it. <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave it because you're bringing the conversation full circle. Um, Kaylee, where can people find you and your adventures on the internet? I'm mostly on Instagram. You can find me at, at Kaylee Rosen, um, K-A-I-L-E-E-R-O-S-E-N. Um, that's pretty much all I'm on right now. I do have a TikTok, but I don't upload there nearly as much as I should. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it, honestly. Well, I'm going to put everything you just said in the show notes on my website, AaronBossing.com. Kaylee, I thank you so much for meeting with me here. Um, I'm hoping that we can work together like we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. And I, you're welcome back anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron. It was fantastic talking to you. I would like to thank Kaylee for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. 
I'd like to remind you that I always put the links to everything we talk about in the show notes on my website, aaronbosick.com, and that's going to include links to Kaylee's full website. Kaylee is a talented visual artist, and I love the audio podcast, but one of its weaknesses is it doesn't really give you the chance to really see the work that these people are putting into this, so I strongly advise you look up Kaylee's site, check out her portfolio, and Take a look and see if there might be something that suits your taste. And if you might not see exactly what you want, consider ordering a commission. You might find that maybe you like her style, but you prefer a different character or concept. And I bet you somebody like Kaylee could make it happen. If you'd like to reach out to me, you could do so at bossigpodcast at yahoo.com or follow me on Blue Sky, Twitter, or Instagram at Aaron Bossig. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon, Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.